know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast. We have Sarah Bessel that's coming back this week to dive deeper into some of the issues that I think you're going to find really interesting. This week, I want to really talk about prosecution and prosecution at any cost. Uh, Sarah and her team have done a lot of research in this area. And so it's, you know, we tend to think that traffickers are arrested and then they go to court and then hopefully they're convicted if if they did the crime and they go to prison and victims receive justice. And uh, but it's not that simple. It's not that black and white. And so I really want Sarah to talk more about this really cool report they did that I think everyone should read. But um, so some victims are not willing to testify against their trafficker. And what happens in those cases? So, Sarah, can you talk about the report that you all did and some of the findings? Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much, Celia. And all of the credit goes to my fantastic colleague, Alexandra Yelderman, who did the research and wrote this report uh, on this important topic. And the report, which is titled and up on our website, called Prosecution at Any Cost, the Impact of Material Witness Warrants in Federal Human Trafficking Cases, highlights the really troubling practice of arresting human trafficking victims in order to secure their testimony against their traffickers. Um, because trafficking testimony, uh, trafficking victims' testimony rather, is so critical to putting traffickers behind bars. Uh, if a court anticipates that a witness's testimony is what they call material, but determines that the witness is unlikely to appear willingly, mm-hmm. a court can issue a material witness or uh, warrant for the witness's arrest, and this is without regard to whether or not the witness is also a victim. So even if I'm scared, if I'm afraid, if I have just been victimized and traumatized repeatedly by my trafficker, my government may compel me to come into the courtroom and do give testimony when I don't want to? That is absolutely correct. We found, or uh, our researchers found in this report, 49 individual instances of a material witness uh, warrant being issued to either a trafficking victim witness or someone related, Mm -hmm. uh, a related witness. And essentially what the report points out is that detaining a trafficking victim in order to compel them to testify at trial is frankly at odds with a victim-centered approach to human trafficking. And, you know, at what cost to victims should traffickers be brought to justice? Absolutely. And so, and, and many trafficking victims don't even have an attorney, according to the report, until they're arrested um, on a warrant like this, right? 
That's correct. And even then they're not being provided with, or we, we don't believe that they're being provided with the information uh, that they are uh, due under the Crime Victims Rights Act. And, and we, we cite in the report that the Crime Victims Rights Act is a powerful check on prosecutors that are acting against the best interests of the victims. Mm-hmm. And, and under that statute, you know, victims of crime, whether they be adults or minors, have substantive rights, uh, the right to be treated with fairness and with respect for their dignity and privacy. And so they yes. should be connected with support services and they should be connected with um, with counsel who can help them navigate a really complicated legal process. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to demonize prosecutors, but prosecutors mm-hmm. build their careers on winnable cases, correct? They do. And that's something that the report, uh, again, which is up on our website, cites to there is this um, this, this dissonance between the priorities of prosecutors, which is to get stats and win cases, and mm-hmm. a victim-centered approach, which they also, to their credit, do ascribe to. But mm-hmm. this is a particular area where those those two butt, butt up against each other. Yeah, it seems like a conflict. If if I'm mm-hmm. a prosecutor, I am very interested in in building my career on winnable cases. And if that might be at the cost of um, perhaps even further traumatizing victims by compelling their testimony, then maybe I might make that choice. Right, exactly. And that choice, as we found, has been made at least 49 times. Um, our data set, as I, you know, as we discussed on a previous interview, uh, is, is focused primarily on federal criminal case dockets. And as the report says, you know, we identify 49 cases, but there is reason to believe that there could be much more just because we're reliant on documents that reference a material witness warrant. And it's entirely possible that it's not referenced or it's under seal and we can't access them. Wow. And so how does that play out for someone who is a foreign victim or a non-citizen? Are there any particular vulnerabilities there? I think for foreign nationals, they are particularly hesitant to cooperate or can be hesitant to cooperate with law enforcement because of fears of incredible fears of deportation, especially mm-hmm. victims who are found in immigration raids. And, and so that's a huge concern. Mm-hmm. Because the stories we hear are that, oh, well, you know, your family can be brought over into the U.S. and be kept safe if they're under threat. And and you will receive, um, you know, legal services and housing and social services and counseling and all the things that you need to rebuild your life. But I think in the in this narrative, we don't get into the weeds of what could actually happen in the courtroom. And that's, that seems devastating or potentially devastating to victims. It is, it is incredibly devastating for victims. The risk for further traumatization of persons who have already been so incredibly traumatized by their trafficking experience is very high. And so what could we do about this issue? There is a conflict here between victim-centered services and victims uh, receiving justice, whether they want to receive justice or not. So what, it, what does your team see as a resolution? So we really see the Crime Victims' Rights Act, which I mentioned previously, as uh, a really powerful check 
um, when prosecutors are acting against the best interests of the victims. And as I said, under that under that act, victims of crimes have uh, various rights. And so we would argue that that when a, a victim witness is engaging with law enforcement, that they be made aware of their rights under the Crime Victims Rights Act, mm-hmm. uh, that they be provided with information about support services, and they are assisted in contacting those services. In the case of a minor, uh, appointing what's called a guardian at litem is arguably in the best interests of minors mm-hmm. and protecting them. Mm-hmm. And lastly, you know, I think in keeping with the the larger discussion nationally on on defunding the police, mm-hmm. we would argue that a focus should be on providing services to trafficking victims rather than arresting and incarcerating them, which this report focus, touches on and which our research indicates is the norm. We need to flip that. We need to ensure that victim witnesses in human trafficking cases can remain accessible to law enforcement if they uh, if they have need of them, but have them in specialized shelters, have them in hotels. Don't put them in jails. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like we are really serving uh, criminal justice instead of serving the victim. We're making it very convenient for criminal justice to do their job, but not victim centered at all. So uh, what about so guardian ad litems? I think that's awesome for people underage. Who do you suggest be that advocate for people who are adults to make sure that their rights are protected? So unfortunately, in our current legal system, uh, we don't have a right to counsel for victim witnesses. Um, Mm -hmm. But again, you know, as mentioned with the CVRA, the Crime Victims Rights Act, you know, there are support services available for victims and those support service organizations have contacts with lawyers. And so that's why we find it so critical that that victim witnesses are connected properly with these support services organizations who can then refer them out to legal service providers that can help and assist them to navigate the justice system in the way that they want. Mm-hmm. And so tell us a little bit about um, another report that was really eye-opening, um, human trafficking and forced labor in for-profit detention facilities. Talk about the issues there. Sure, I'd be happy to. So this is another report also written by the brilliant Alexander Yelderman, uh, and it's a fact sheet on human trafficking, forced labor, and for-profit detention facilities, and it gives an overview of the current landscape of strategic litigation. And so essentially, the 13th Amendment, which has a carve-out for for prison work, Mm -hmm. uh, only applies to people who have been convicted of crimes. This does not give prisons carte blanche to abuse inmates and exploit their labor. And so really what this report focuses on and brings to light are the various areas within this universe where advocates are really creatively using the Trafficking Victims Protection Act to file lawsuits, to push back uh, and whittle down the 13th Amendment carve out for convicted individuals to its original narrow plain language. Mm-hmm. And that means in English. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's okay. I think you went off into legal lawyer I, land. So I, I, thank you for checking me. It's, it's uh, an affliction. <laughs> yeah, so tell us in English, what does that mean? So basically it means that yes, well, the 13th amendment does allow a carve out essentially for, 
mm-hmm. slavery and involuntary servitude as a criminal punishment. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, in plain English, mean that uh, private prison corporations can force allegedly civil immigrant detainees to mm-hmm. work because those mm-hmm. immigrant detainees have not been convicted of a crime. Mm-hmm. It does not mean that municipalities and other inefic- and other officials can effectively conspire to create a system of debt servitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we in the legal world call it peonage, uh, and it's a, a form of um, forced labor that has been outlawed in this country. So it sounds like you're saying these for-profit detention, these, these for-profit prisons will have inmates work uh, in a way that is for the, the prison's benefit. Is that what's happening? That's what the that's what the plaintiffs, especially in the civil detention, civil immigrant detainee cases, are alleging. So mm-hmm. in that line of cases, there have been multiple cases filed against immigration detention facilities owned by Geo Group and CoreCivic, the two largest private correctional corporations in the United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's called the voluntary work problem. Uh, that was a slip of the tongue. A voluntary that's work so program. <laughs> Sorry, Freudian slip. Or or VWP, and in during under that program, they're they're only paid a dollar a day for doing janitorial work, mm-hmm. and the way that they allege that they were coerced into doing this work is uh, through set threats of solitary confinement, uh, charging for food and water. Um, the the they allege that the, the facilities would threaten to revoke their family visitation rights with full mail delivery, and the plaintiffs have argued made the argument that. Geo and CoreCivic are allegedly profiting off of this incredibly cheap and forced labor. They don't have to pay a janitorial staff because they're forcing, allegedly, they're forcing their inmates to do that. Wow. So corporate, so this is a, a business, it's a corporate entity, is is legally so far practicing what we all would consider forced labor practices. Yes, that's what the plaintiffs are alleging. Again, these cases are currently ongoing and moving through the court system uh, in various states. And so we're, we're tracking these cases very closely uh, to see where they're going. That is very interesting and makes total sense. We have a for-profit prison where I am in Ohio, and there are many, many complaints in the uh, AFL-CIO have come to town and did, done presentations for us for us to understand that these for-profit detention facilities are really just businesses that I think they were used in different language, but were engaged in forced labor, labor trafficking in, in essence. And I understand that's what's being alleged. So we have to find out, you know, what the final fallout is, but how did this come about? How are prisons just able to, you know, why aren't prisons government run? Why can some business come come to the forefront and say, yeah, I'd like to open a prison and I'd like to uh, detain people? And I, I didn't even know that that was possible until a few years ago. How did that come about? Do you know? You know, that is a really good question. And I would have to defer to my colleague on that because I'm not as well versed in the prison industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do know that it is, you know, it is a significant problem in the United States and it is. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that that is just going to be a, an uphill battle, very political, because there has to be 
millions of dollars on the table here. Lots of people profiting off of this. And I have to imagine that these for-profit detention centers have no interest in um, letting people out for good behavior, in knocking down sentences, because if you let people out early, you lose your workforce, you you lose the profits that you're making. So it seems like it turns, it has the potential anyway, to turn everything on its head in terms of your motivation to bring in GED services or bring in support services, your motivation to not have overcrowding in your facility. It just turns everything on its head. It seems like a big conflict of interest when that happens. It, it absolutely is. And it is why, you know, corporations are, are fighting back in the courts. Uh, but it's also why innovative advocates are, are filing these really cutting edge cases. And, you know, for your listeners, if, you know, we focus very closely on the forced labor intersection uh, with prisons, but for the, your listeners who are interested in diving more into the privatization of prisons, um, I recommend reaching out or looking up Abolish Private Prisons, which is a nonprofit that uh, recently filed a lawsuit on behalf of the NAACP against the Arizona Department of Corrections. Uh, mm-hmm. these, those claims are under the 13th Amendment. But it, as, their, um, as the title of their organization implies, you know, their mission is to truly uh, to abolish the privatization in the prison industrial complex in this country. Absolutely. And where can people get a hold of these two very critical reports that you guys did? They uh, can go directly to our website, htlegalcenter.org and under our publications page those are right up there for you to download for free and uh how do people get involved if they want to start fighting you you know you gave us a good tip on the um, privatization of prisons but if somebody wants to start fighting this issue of uh prosecutors compelling victims testimony and incarcerating them to do so you have any suggestions on how people might advocate? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think people should look to a variety of allies. Uh, I think there are a lot of good groups in the sex worker rights sphere mm-hmm. that are working against uh, police sexual misconduct and uh, material witness warrants and the abuse of sex workers and sex trafficking victims. Uh, I think, you know, we are currently in such an incredible time of social change right now. And there are so many groups working on domestic civil rights issues, especially around how around prisons and the subjugation of black and brown bodies. Mm -hmm. And so I would recommend that, you know, read the news, look at the groups that are being interviewed, look at their website, follow up, subscribe to their newsletter and get involved. And what about people that are in law school now or they want to go to law school and this has like sparked a passion in them? Uh, any advice on moves they should be making, courses they should be taking, groups they should belong to? Yeah, I think don't limit yours. Don't by any means uh, pigeonhole yourself into a certain area. You know, take, uh, I think, again, we've, we're realizing how intersectional everything is. So take courses in employment law, take courses in civil rights law, take courses in administrative law. Um, as DACA has pointed out the power of the APA, the Administrative Pro- uh, Procedure Act, and following administrative protocols. Um, 
you know, and, and I think sign up for clinics that are doing really, you know, law school clinics are doing really, really interesting work and supporting nonprofit clients and their strategic litigation. There's a lot of resources out there. Does your organization take on interns or uh, what's the language when you're in law school and it, we call it internship, but you might call it something else? Um, yes, yeah, so we call it a, a summer fellow. Uh, and okay. so we um, we accept law st- current law students for our summer fellowship program. It's a three month program, usually in the office, but virtual for now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if law students are interested in uh, applying for our our summer term in 2021, uh, keep an eye on our website and we should post that listing uh, usually mid fall. There's any law student listening who is interested in just learning more and following up. They're free to email us at info at htlegalcenter.org, and one of our staff is happy to chat with them. Well, I love your uh, motto, when survivors have lawyers, survivors have rights. I love that um, saying. I think it's so true, and never before have we been so appreciative, I think, of lawyers, of attorneys. Um, I think for many decades, we may have, you know, thought that litigation is just out of control and everybody's suing everybody from, you know, spilling hot coffee to whatever. It's (laughs) gone a little crazy. And now I think in these times, we really have to take a step back and appreciate the work that lawyers are doing all across the country and around the world from showing up at airports, uh, you know, when people were trying to come into the country to making sure that every single person's rights are protected. I mean, that's it's a big job. And I think we forgot for a moment the importance of somebody standing up for our rights and, and teaching us about the nuances, not painting human trafficking with a broad stroke and thinking that everything is all right, but showing us the nuances and, and the steps we need to make you know, right now to make sure that what we go out and say in our human trafficking presentations and what is the truth and that we educate people that we have a, still a lot of work to do. So I just appreciate these two reports. And, you know, we we may ask you back, Sarah, if you don't mind, we'll just keep Absolutely. pestering you. But <laughs> no, no, no bother at all. We're happy to we're happy to always hop on. It's a great show. Yeah, I think that people, once they understand uh, what's actually in these two reports, I think they will start going out and talking to their people. And the ripple effect will just be huge. And, uh, you know, what I would say is to start talking to your legislators and start talking to people that can open doors because you all did the work, you did the report. And now if the advocates will take the report and start talking two people in power, um, we can start to move this mountain, I, I believe. So thank you again so much, Sarah. And any, any parting words uh, about these two reports or about w- what we should be doing? We're always adamant about the victim-centered approach and that, you know, for the survivors that want to engage with the justice system, we want to get them a lawyer to help them navigate that system. And where they don't want to access a justice system, that is their choice and their right. Prosecutors fight for justice for victims. Prisons serving society by punishing or rehabilitating, depending on how you view it, the criminal 
are the good guys, no? I've said it many times, the issue of human trafficking isn't black and white. In fact, it's gray. In the case of prosecuting traffickers, the cartoon version is that traffickers are arrested, prosecuted, they go to prison, and the victim feels good because justice was served. In fact, the prosecution of a trafficker may be somewhat even therapeutic for a victim, and there's closure. However, that's not always the case, and the system almost always gets the right to tell the story through its eyes. They control the narrative, and the story told to us is that the victim receives justice by prosecuting their trafficker, and it's always a good thing. But what if the government decides to move forward on a case and the victim doesn't want to testify? Is justice more important than giving back the freedom, choice, and agency that we all fought so hard for the victim to receive? Is our need for justice more important? Prosecutors build their careers on winnable cases. Is there a conflict of interest here? Are victims, both adults and juveniles, being informed of their rights? Let's think about something else. The 13th Amendment gives the state the authority to lock you up for crimes you committed, but it doesn't give the state the right to profit off of you. Or does it? Enslavement for profit, debt, bondage, peonage is by definition labor trafficking. But when a for-profit prison corporation does it, it's called business. Benjamin Franklin said it best, justice, real justice, will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues. <laughs>